0: Uh, people were on a talk show, and you know, I got to do some little gimmick and introduction, and just like, man, this is not a real conversation. No, I would not do this in real life at all. So, yeah, we <laughs> just have a conversation. Yeah, man. we're just having like two dudes just sitting down talking. <laughs> like, if somebody came up and was like, Who, who's this guy, I'll just formally introduce you. I wouldn't just say, you know, give you some big spill or whatever. <laughs> so, that's just yeah. my theory on that. But other people, you know, they have their different ways of doing things, but you know,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. So, anyway, oh, you just mentioned so you're doing an elimination diet. I am, yeah, which uh, kind of interestingly flies a little bit in the face of um, kind of my approach to nutrition because I'm actually a nutrition and weight loss coach. And uh, the hashtag that got started a couple of years back was no FN diets, so no FN diets because my company is Freedom Nutrition Coaching. Okay. And so that, that was kind of a joke that turned into a bit of a hashtag amongst my, my clients is no FN diets thing. But um, I've had some digestive issues, uh, upper GI Upper gastrointestinal tract that is so lots of like reflux and just kind of belchiness after meals mm-hmm. and uh then getting a little bit of bloating like I'll eat certain things and look like I swallowed a beach ball and uh you know I had a pretty good idea like you know that's usually going to be something like SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth but uh um I, so sometimes in my business actually I, I subcontract to a nutrition therapy practitioner so I bring her on with some of the cases when I'm working with somebody I so said let's see if we can identify some specifics here and so say hey let's run this let's run this test on me and see what see what comes up And uh, so we put a few things in place, and I'm probably moving actually in the direction of slightly more restrictive, or I will be, uh, getting close to what's known as AIP or autoimmune uh, paleo. Oh, yeah. And uh, AIP is not intended to be, for most people, like it's meant to be a, a temporary intervention, essentially, um, and you can support it with maybe some supplements to to do a little bit of to take care of dysbiosis or kill off some bacteria in your gut or something like that. Um, but really, it's it's intended to be kind of a short term intervention to um, kind of give your digestive tract a chance to to recover. And then because uh, it takes a little bit of time to clear out some of the inflammatory markers that, that occur when you eat something your body doesn't like. And so you give 60 days of AIP which to some people drive them nuts and and to me like three Mm. years ago it would have drove me nuts as well when I was you know still struggling with my relationship with food um but then once that's done you reintroduce foods in like a really small like it sounds very tiny but you know you'd have like let's say you're going to reintroduce egg whites and see how you tolerate them Mm -hmm. you'd eat like a teaspoon of egg whites and then 15 minutes later eat like a tablespoon of egg whites a really really small amount because you're going to have a reaction to it you want it to be small sure um couple hours later maybe you'll eat one egg white so like the the remainder of that egg white and then maybe a couple if you're not getting any reaction try again a couple hours later and just have like a full serving of it and usually that means okay that one's not a problem food and then you kind of just cycle your way through and there's probably some foods that are better to start with than others um and so yeah, we're kind of. I'm kind of going in the direction of gradually eliminating things. Kind of the last thing on my list to, to drop is tomatoes because I love salsa. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like holding out against salsa. I'm like, no, I will not give up my favorite condiment. Have you always <clears throat>
0: experienced these issues with food, or is this something that just came on later in like your adult life? Or,
1: um, kind of started getting reflux about two two years ago. Um, we did it, we did like six to eight weeks with a PPI with some medication, a proton pump inhibitor, just to to block reflux. But at least in Canada, the idea is you don't take this for the rest of your life. I have a client who's been on a PPI for like a year. It's like, no, you take this for a short period of time. What it does is it, is it blocks the production of stomach acid to give your esophagus a break. So it's like, let's stop burning that for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let it, let it get a break. Um, and then uh, reintroduce some things and, and actually just put some very simple physical interventions in place. So, you know, sleep on your left side, not your right side. So your stomach is lower than higher rather than higher because it physically is on the left side of your body, right? So if you sleep on the right side and you have food anything in your stomach, um, it's, it's kind of like you got a bag that's emptying downhill. Um, Whereas you sleep on your left side, it would be a bag trying to empty uphill. Um, Limiting your fluid intake before within an hour of going to bed because, hey, if anything, your stomach becomes a little more fluid or watery, essentially, it's more likely to leak out of a small opening if if your sphincter valve on the top of your stomach didn't close properly. So. Little things like that that we like I would have never thought about before. And it kinda of just started with this feeling of always needing to clear my throat. So it wasn't so much the tightness and burning in my chest, but always gotta clear my throat. So it yeah. was really my throat being irritated by this. So So we'll, so just the foods was causing your throat to be mm-hmm. irri- or irritated? Uh well what it is, like it's it's the acid, the acid. In, in whatever yeah. It's you Yeah. But then there's a problem with uh let's say if you eat something like tomatoes or citrus fruits, which are acidic until they're digested. So now that acid, the acidic food, is going to r- run right over that irritated part of your esophagus and feel like crap too. Sure. Right? You're like, let's just rub some acid <laughs> in this irritated tissue here. See how that feels. So you've got you to gotta remove some of the acidic um, foods as well. Um, coffee can be problematic. Cho- mm-hmm. uh, chocolate. Uh, partly because caffeine or in chocolate, theobromine. That's the chocolate's compound that's very similar to caffeine. Um, they can cause you, the sphincter valve on the top of your stomach, to relax. And again, stuff leaks out, splashes up, can give you a bit of reflux. That
0: makes sense. I didn't realize that. Uh,
1: yeah. Garlic, onions, you know, like the shallots or shallots. I'm not sure how if it's shallots or shallots, but anyways, garlic, onions, chives, and what's the other endives, and leeks. There we go. Yeah. So, that, that. Uh-huh. So I mean, I've experienced with a lot of – well, not a lot, but it's a few different
0: uh, diets. You know, I, I don't know uh, if you knew this, but I'm a CrossFitter. Then, you know, they're big on a paleo diet. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I played with that for a while. Um, I did Renaissance periodization. I don't know if you've heard of them. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I followed RP. their yeah, – the RP. Yeah, I followed uh, yep. their, their lean dot at one point, and this is probably about three or four years ago. And this is where my relationship with food, I guess, started getting more serious because it was more like, oh, yeah, there's actually – you know, you got to realize what you're actually putting into your body and what works for your body yeah, and what yeah. doesn't. And I even, you know, maybe like it probably was last year or two. I I did the carnivore diet for maybe three weeks, but that just I just couldn't handle just eating only meat <laughs> and stuff. So that didn't that one didn't last long. But that was just that was just another elimination diet right there. So
1: yeah, that's super interesting because I'm I'm moving more and more into the ethical omnivore style of eating. So no, or nose to tail eating is another way of calling it. Oh, yeah. I've actually got some, some some pig heart marinating right now. Um, you know if if someone's like wondering where do you start it's like don't start with beef liver (laughs) that's gonna be that's gonna be a tough one but start with something like chicken gizzards the name sounds really off-putting but essentially chickens have this kind of like a second stomach and they they eat stones and gravel and thing think uh things and it goes into this gizzard and it grinds up because chicken don't have teeth it grinds up whatever they eat all the stones and gravel in their gizzard so it's this muscular bag now if you if you don't cook them right they come out like super rubbery and chewy and tough and awful so i've got an in instant pot and i cook them for 25 minutes in the pressure cooker okay and they come out like they actually taste a little bit closer to beef like a dark like it's a it would be like a really dark chicken but if, if, if you didn't know what you were eating you might think you're eating beef it's because it's a really dark and rich um, type of meat and it's very tender when you cook it right
0: what, what, what do you think about liver i've never personally ate liver i don't think but that's where that's where all the vitamins and minerals are really. Oh high, man, right? liver yeah. is super
1: healthy. Like it's very nutritious, and people are afraid of liver because like, oh my gosh, it's like the toxic waste dump. I'm like, no, it's not. That's what your colon is. The <laughs> liver secretes the enzymes to break down the stuff and detoxify, that's... and then through the hepatic portal vein dumps it into your colon. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. It's not it's not handled in the liver, so liver is super nutrient rich. It for me it's a texture thing. Um, mm-hmm. Liver has kind of like this powdery texture that's like. And, and it's not even as much taste as it is textured. Like, God, am I eating meat? Like, what is this? You know, it really throws you, especially if you're just used to eating kind of fibrous, sinewy, like muscle meat. And so what I do instead is I take desiccated liver capsules. Um, uh, in the US, there's universal nutrition and, and they make this uh, these liver tablets. And uh, they, they're probably like two grams per tablet kind of thing of desiccated liver. And they're yeah. giant, they're like horse pills kind of thing. Uni, Uniliver, I think they call it. And it's pretty inexpensive. I in Canada we have a company called Trophic, and they make um, just like powdered liver in capsules. And my preference is for that because they don't have all the binders and stuff like that versus these horse pills. But if you want to get a volume of liver, I'd say go with this this Uniliver um, product. And that, that's another way to get that kind of into your diet.
0: Unilever. So you said that's like a pill or supplement almost?
1: Yeah, it's a tablet. Um, it's this giant jar of tablets. Um, there's like 500 in there, and it's not very expensive. I'm going to have to start making my um, grocery list right here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, just because, uh, you know, as far as nose to tell eating, there's uh, the guy who wrote The Carnivore Diet or the, one of the books on it, like Paul's Saladino. There you go. He was actually yep. talking about that, and that, like he was uh, actually mm-hmm. promoting, I think that he has his own uh pill form where you can get liver and whatever have you on there and but if it's more it yeah. was pretty pricey for what i remember it's like i don't know if i want to go down this way yeah. quite yet
1: and i think that's what you find when you get somebody who uh let's say like uh what's that other pa- really like chris kresser the paleo guy yep. or uh josh axe who's, who's a chiropractor dr josh axe um not, not to knock his education at all but it's like when you go around calling yourself dr axe but you're actually a chiropractor not <laughs> it. it, it you it gotta, can be a little bit misleading now that being said look the guy's well educated he does his research he's got a team of researchers behind him um i don't know how like a chiropractor gets so famous maybe it's because he's handsome, handsome or something i don't know probably helps <laughs> and handsome and charismatic or something um but you know he's got his supplement line uh what was it like mark sisson with primal um you know he i think he's got a supplement line Promo so kitchen, anybody
0: maybe so pardon, Promo, pardon me Primal kitchen maybe
1: no. Yeah, I thought it was like Primal, primal Blueprint.
0: Oh, but, that might be it too then. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So when when these guys come out with um, their protocol and they, they get a certain level of notoriety, it's like, okay, now I'm going to produce a supplement line because I have enough of a following that, that knows, likes and trusts me. But they're going to sell it at a higher price because one, they probably don't have the the scale of production yet, because there's not, I used to be in the supplement industry as well. They probably don't have the scale of production yet to match some of the big supplement co- excuse me supplement companies that have been around for a long time. Um, but secondly, uh, they they get it's like the Starbucks effect. Starbucks and say Dunkin' Donuts aren't selling something vastly different, but That's Starbucks. They they just started naming their products differently, like a venti frappuccino, because we don't have an internal price reference for a venti frappuccino. Whereas you said if you got a coffee with two cream, two sugar, you're like, oh, okay, I pay a buck fifty for that, yeah. right? So by not having an internal price reference, um, you can charge a premium for your product. And by having passionate fans who support you or love your message, and that's why a lot of these figures are also very polarizing because polarizing means that people are going to be more drawn – like people are going to reject you and get angry and, and whatever on the one hand. But on the other side, they're going to love you and get super passionate. you know. And uh, so that's why I think you can get these supplement brands that are making um, huge markups on, on the products they're selling. So you just said you were in the supplement industry. How did you get
0: uh, involved in that? And what were you doing? Uh, well,
1: my – yeah, my educational background originally is chemistry, and uh, then I kind of got into marketing psychology as well, which seems like a really weird pairing. But I was just like, it was kind of a curiosity thing. I was like, psychology is kind of interesting. This is marketing. Maybe I'll go into business one day or something. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so uh, it, it actually started by chance. Um, a former friend of mine uh, had started a supplement store with an, uh, a friend of his in the city that I live in. I live in Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. So we're kind of north of Montana here for the American listeners. Uh, okay, um, And so – that they had a falling out in their partnership. And, uh, so I, I wanted, I didn't want to see his business fail. And so on my days off, I was at that time I was working what we call the oil patch. So I was, I was driving big trucks and operating heavy equipment. And, uh, so I, I helped him out on my days off. I worked a rotation of 15 days on six days off and I'd go into the store. And what would happen is people started asking for, Hey, where's this John guy? Cause because I'm like well-educated in chemistry, I've got a almost encyclopedic memory, um, I don't want to say encyclopedic because I do forget some things, um, like but i got a random information. memory
0: almost. You mean
1: uh, like, not quite photo, not quite photographic, but I say encyclopedic, so I remember facts, numbers, details really well. Oh. I never had to, I never studied in school. I would just show up and like write the test. Oh, you were those guys,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like my last university exam, I remember I, I stayed up all night drinking jolt cola and playing video games and strolled into my exam, um, which is I, – I, I'm not that cocky anymore. <laughs> uh, anyways, so I would, I would um, go to the store and I could tell people if they wanted, I could tell them what every ingredient and every supplement did in the store. Wow, and, uh, that's nice. Yeah, so then they, they'd come in. But uh, so, so that kind of got me into that. And then the, the supplement reps started coming to me and being like, okay, well, what do you think about this product, this product, or how would you adjust this formulation? And this is mostly for Canadian companies, so smaller companies. Yeah. And I'm like, well, put me in touch with your, you know, formulator and I'll just have a conversation with them. And we got, we would get talking about it now, you know, and then there's considerations you have to make when you're coming up with a formulation because there's, there's like therapeutic dosage. So like you could put 500 milligrams of something in, but if three grams is the effective dose, you're basically just, uh, we call it fairy dusting. Um so getting uh, so nowadays supplements because transparency is a really big thing and clinical dosing is a really big thing that's why you see the prices of supplements going up as well. Uh, so anyways I started just consulting with some formulators and then we started looking at potentially doing some manufacturing as well. So we never actually ended up with a full manufacturing line but we 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 were um sort of lining that up. Um but ultimately, actually, the business that I was in failed. Uh, business partnership failed. It was kind of a uh, looking back. I mean, it was a toxic business partnership. I was in business with a, a narcissist and a sociopath, who you was should. a pathological liar. Yeah, and and a lot of a lot of it was a shell. And uh, unfortunately, I found out a little 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 too late. Um, and so that ended up costing me a lot of money. So that that all kind of fell through. Um, which, which really sucked because I was starting to really build up a reputation. I would go to like local raw ingredient manufacturers and stuff like that. We were setting everything up. Um, I was buying bulk ingredients and I was making my own formulations. Um, yeah, I was kind of like a mad scientist a little bit. And uh, so so that got me access to quite a lot, uh, quite a few different companies and sort of w- w- what they do, which was really, it was really kind of interesting. So I started to really establish this reputation in the supplement industry. I think part of the reason why I was so um, keen on this, though, is really connected to my own personal story. Um, I was, I was dealing with struggling with my weight. Uh, and, and one of the big challenges I faced is how could I be so educated and struggle with my weight? And, uh, I was looking for a lot of answers, you know, on like examine.com and supplement research and supplement science to kind of avoid dealing with the real issues I needed to deal with, with myself and my relationship with food. And so supplements became sort of the thing that I became known as the supplement guru.
0: So what do you mean you were struggling with your, a relationship with food i mean you just kind of you just kind of say what you wanted to you just, you just <clears throat> didn't, um were you not working out then too or you were just like drinking coke <laughs> play video games just chilling. <laughs>
1: <Whoa>. <laughs> well there's a bit of the backstory there um and that is that uh like i went through trauma um a little over 10 years ago uh when i was living in south africa so um i was nearly beaten to death down there and uh yeah, so that that was a pretty pretty hard experience to go through, and I mean, it sounds like I'm I'm, I'm sort of glossing over some detail because I know we can talk about it later if if it's a value. But um, oh yeah, yeah, kind of the the follow from that is like like anyone who's been through trauma, like like nothing nothing really sets up your brain to sort of deal with something like that. And uh, so I went from being like athletic to using food to cope with my trauma and and basically suppress my feelings and things like that. And that kind of put me into a pattern of being a binge eating food addict. Um, so the way that the, the the brain works, I mean, it's, it's, let's say I'm feeling extremely distressed or under duress and, you know, reliving trauma and things like that. And then I start eating and it allows me to escape from my trauma. My brain's learned something. When I feel trauma, I eat food, I feel better. Right. And so that becomes a habitual pattern of behavior, e- even kind of hardwired. And so trying to break that, it can be really, really difficult without sort of addressing the emotional connection. So then kind of the next piece of the puzzle was I went from like being athletic to being obese. And... I, so I, I really struggle with my sense of identity now all of a sudden because who am I in this like huge 330-pound body when I used to be like a 210-pound athlete? Sure. And uh, yeah, so that was that was a real struggle. And then what I say, like what nobody tells you about being obese is like I, I call it a fat cell is a gift that keeps on giving. In other words, once it's created, it's always there. You can shrink it and you can empty it, but it's always there waiting to be refilled. And if you're, if you're not mindful of, of what's going on, you will, uh, you can rapidly regain weight. And this is what really discourages people and messes with their head. So for me, um, I had to wade into this kind of world of weight loss, what I never had to be a part of before because, you know, I was an athlete lifting weights. I stayed active, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden I'm like, how the hell do I lose weight? You know, because there's there's a time when you kind of emerge from the fog of trauma a little bit and oh, you yeah. start to like find yourself <laughs> again. And so it's like, well, crap. I've never had to like, like how do I do this? <laughs> you know, this is a whole new world yeah. for me. And so- um, you know, I went through the whole process of like macro coaching and, and, uh, just hiring, hiring different coaches, like bodybuilding style coaches. I was in the supplement industry. Like none of them could seem to address what was really going on in my life. And I didn't even know what I was, lo- I think the biggest thing is I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know the help that I needed. And so I'd go to work with a coach and I'd just get frustrated and angry because I'm like, you don't seem to get it. Like you don't understand. And, and I didn't understand either. So I think there was, there was that frustration when it was partly aimed at myself as well as the coaches who were not equipped to deal with me. Um, Like they didn't understand the mental part of it. Is that
0: what you're saying?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it really, it wasn't until about 2017 when I hired a coach and he's a natural bodybuilder. looks like really good in his forties kind of thing. And so I thought here again, I'm hiring somebody uh, because I thought that I would be happy if I could kind of, you know, build a physique like he had, if I could lose the weight and kind of look like him. And I thought he was going to, you know, kind of show me some, I don't know, something that I didn't know. (laughs) And in a sense he did, but he, he treated me differently. Um, in a sense, that he didn't. He didn't like shame me. He didn't guilt me. He didn't try to coerce me. Um, he kind of just let me. I, I say wrestle with my demons in the light. So he didn't use like I would use my own struggles. I'd, be, I'd beat myself up. I get so angry at myself. I would try to push myself harder. You know, I was I was powerlifting. I was you know snorting pre workout. I was I was jamming <laughs> a, you know jamming ephedrine. Like um, I was sort of dabbling in, or I was getting very close to stepping into sort of the underground supplement world because I have connections to that as well. Oh yeah. Um, because I've been connected to the bodybuilding industry. Like, so I was really sort of heading in the wrong direction. I think and I was also sleeping five hours a night and running, you know, trying to run a business for 14 hours a day kind yeah. of thing. So I was trashing my health and I was getting angrier and angrier because my body wouldn't respond. And it's like, of course, it's not going to respond not when you're overloading your nervous system like that. And so then I started having the panic attacks and the anxiety attacks. Um, and so, and that's why I the time my like, business failed and I lost all my money. Uh, like a lot of it. <laughs> so had a whole lot of things go wrong all at once and so really having a coach like that that was just kind of like guiding me through this and being like yo just like let's take a step back here this and is all like 10 years of, 10 years ago uh, so this this is a, this this is part here, sorry, the trauma happened 10 years ago. Okay. I struggled for about six to seven years with like being a binge eating food addict um, and then finally hired a coach because I could starve myself. I could, you know, keto my way down or I could, you know, intermittent fast my way down or macro Wait. my way down um, to, to lose a certain amount of weight. But eventually I would just erupt. You know, I just couldn't take it anymore. I would just burn out and just go back to eating all the food because it wasn't addressing why I was eating the food. Right.
0: Well, so how did you find this – just by that coach, is how you just kind of overcame the mental part of it and you just worked on yourself? And
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's that he opened, he opened my mind to a different possibility and a different approach. So I kept thinking that, okay, I need a supplement, you know, I need the supplement regimen. Um, I need the certain workout plan, I need the certain meal plan. Like there's just there's some piece of the puzzle that I'm missing. And uh, truthfully, it was when he asked me the question, he said, you know, Jonathan, if you, if you make a list of things you love and value, um, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that, that one really kind of hit me because it, it wasn't that I was like near the bottom of the list. It was, I wasn't on the list. And wow. so, it, yeah. So you opened my mind. Like, I like that. <clears throat> Sorry yeah. to me. Yeah. So I was like, flip, like men never talk about this. Like, nah. what, you know, what what does it mean? Like, I had no idea where to start all of a sudden. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, cause I, I'm also ex military, you know, service before self and so on. And like, I, I was sort of the proverbial set myself on fire to keep others warm kind of guy. So how do I start this process of learning to love myself? Like that was, that was a really, it was kind of, it kind of shook me um, because it it really confronted like maybe everything I felt or believed about masculinity as well. You know, uh, it seemed like the only safe emotion was anger. Mm-hmm. And here I was being given permission to feel other things to actually like show myself compassion, um, which maybe I was viewing as weakness you know, in a masculine sense. And so it was really, it started this kind of very interesting journey. So it was kind of like he asked the right question at the right time that just sort of unlock something in my brain that goes, oh, my gosh, like this is a this is a different possibility that I've never considered before.
0: You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up just because, you know, you said you're from Canada, right, right above Montana. And how old are you, yeah. if you don't mind me asking? I'm th- 39. Right, and I'm 35. So, you know, it seems like, you know, with me, I'm in Virginia. So with me growing up, it was kind of one of those things that I wouldn't say, you know, every family is different, obviously, and I'm just generally speaking. But, you know. You wanted to be masculine, even around your boys and around your friends. I around, totally, yeah. yeah. You, you never wanted, to, you know, to show that if you were unhappy or sad or crying, unless it just actually just came out. And you, even then, if you were crying about something, you're trying to, you know, do that like holding <laughs> in crying, you're trying but, to hold it back. Yeah, and you're like, totally. Oh, I'm good, you know. And but you know, and I don't think that yeah, that part was just never brought on me. But it, you know, I kind of learned it through time that okay, yeah, you can show other emotions rather than just happy yeah. and mad and. You yeah, know, everyone's going through stuff, and you just never know what other person might be going through, just like
1: kind of like yourself. Yeah, well, here's the thing: like we don't really choose our emotions, and uh, so so it makes no sense to sort of equate weakness to emotion. An emotion um, nowadays, I call an emotion like a like a check engine light on your dashboard. Yeah, you know, a little that yel- little yellow light comes on, and it doesn't tell you what's wrong, but it tells you something is wrong, and something needs your attention. Mm-hmm. And so my my analogy here is that I was the equivalent of taking a piece of black electrical tape and putting it over the light on the dashboard, so I couldn't see it. But the problem's still there. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and like I'd been through trauma counseling and whatnot, and I'd kind of had an understanding of of some of what trauma was doing to my brain and sort of what it would take to kind of work through it and so on. Um, but it's like the the path of sort of trauma recovery led me down this path of becoming like sort of self-loathing, self-hating, angry at myself. So I started to internalize everything and all of my struggles and my, my perceived failures um, just because I felt inadequate. I was like, how could I know so much, be respected for the amount of body of knowledge I have and my ability to help other people, but I seem to be helpless when it comes to working with myself. And so, yeah, that was, that was like this huge kind of paradigm shift and really changed how I work with people in my own coaching.
0: Well, if you don't mind me asking, can we talk about that? What happened 10 years ago
1: in South Africa? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, and I uh, just, is for anybody I want to say, like, it's. it might sound like I can talk relatively lightly about it, um, but it's because I've done the work um, and I've, I've moved past it, like I've worked through it. And so, um, it, it, you know. We were, we were traveling around the world. So my wife and I spent about three years uh, as globetrotting nomads. Um, we do a lot of traveling anyways, nice. but this was like a three-year dedicated living out of suitcases covering a lot of distance all around the world. And uh, one of the places we ended up was down in South Africa because um, when we'd been living in Mexico, we met a South African. Um, when we were living in Poland, he actually came to Poland and worked with us for a bit. And then he said, come down to South Africa. Work with my parents down here. They um, – they were running like a, a kind of internship for underprivileged youth. So basically teaching life skills, helping them become sort of more employable because their education system is a complete failure, the public education system in South Africa. It's kind of hard for us to imagine. Well, maybe not so much anymore. But, but I mean, like yeah, down there, it's, it's, it's corrupt. It's just an abject failure. And so... I thought South
0: Africa was more uh, civilized, I guess,
1: for some reason. Or is there only like one city
0: in South Africa that's... Like a vacation. Spot. Uh, no, no, it's. Or am not thinking of something completely wrong here?
1: No, I mean, uh, so South Africa. Just, just give people some backstory. Um, it's about fifty million people in South Africa. Um oh. There's about eleven different ethnic groups that comprise the South African population. So there's eight different ethnic black groups, um, as well as uh, what they call the coloureds. Um, that's the, that's the mixed mixed race. Um, and then you have like the South Asians, um, which is typically like your Bangladeshis, Indians, Pakistanis, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then you have like your uh, English speaking whites and then your Afrikaans, which are like the, they speak Afrikaans, which is like a dialect of Dutch. So you have all these different ethnic groups and there's tension amongst all of them. So sometimes there's uh, so, South Africa is about 80% um, black and about, uh, I want to say about 7% white. And there's a mixture of like colors and, and so on in there. And this is, this is the terminology they use. Uh, and so... Within each ethnic group, there's there's already tensions. Like people would think like it's a black-white issue. I'm like, no, it's That's it's an ethnic issue. Um, the Zulus, you know, they hate the Tswana or the Petty or, you know, and so on. Because they have major cultural differences. Because South Africa, a lot of the uh, – anyone living in South Africa didn't come from there. They all emigrated from uh, – sorry, emigrated from further north and came down into South Africa and actually killed off most of the indigenous people that originally lived in South Africa called wow. the San Bushmen. wow. Right. So that doesn't make the history books, though, because it's, you know... Yeah, you not um, want to just
0: put that in there. It's,
1: yeah. And so anyways, uh, so w- they have... South Africa is w- massively corrupt. Um, their their major political party um, is called the ANC, or the African National Congress. It's, uh, quote-unquote, the Black People's Political Party. Um, it was the party of... I think it was the party of Nelson Mandela. But now they've become extremely corrupt... And uh, so there's 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 a lot of issues where like money is just getting piled up in one corner, and they're still pointing the finger and saying it's all you know it's all these people's fault. Never mind, they're the ones rigging tenders and stuff like that, and just ripping them off. And uh, so it's it's a really you could say in one sense that it's civilized. Uh, yeah, in a sense. I mean, like if if you're smart, you carry a gun at all times, like twenty four seven. You have a six foot uh, brick wall with razor wire over top of it, bars in your doors and windows. Um, panic buttons throughout your house dead bolts on doors inside your house damn um you keep weapons by your bed like you basically live in prison down there and it's not just like white people that have to live like this it's the black people live like this too because the crime is so bad um, but it doesn't get talked about like johannesburg is the murder capital of the world there's something like i don't know fifty, fifty 50 murders a day wow. like gun murders a day i didn't know any of this dude Wow. Yeah, so if you wanted to be an ER surgeon dealing with gunshot wounds, you go to Johannesburg to train because there's so many people getting shot every day. Like 50 murders a day? That's not just fifty gunshot, you know, people getting shot. That's fifty murders a day, gunshot murders a day. So people thought like DC is bad. I'm like, Yeah, DC <laughs> yeah. And
0: Baltimore, yeah. There's hold a whole light to that. Wow.
1: Yeah. Um you, you know, stuff down there, like uh one in four women has been gang raped. Not just one in two women has been raped, one in four have been gang raped. Um and there is a cultural component to that as well. It's uh, so we would hear that, and it doesn't like it doesn't make sense to us because it's not how we grew up. So the South Africa you sort of see in the media, and uh, believe me, it's a beautiful country, and there's a lot of friendly, hospitable people there. Don't 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 want people to misunderstand. Everybody lives in this tension because crime is so bad and so high. Like everybody of every skin color struggles. It's not like a isolated issue. And so we were down there um, working on a nature reserve. So this is, you know, a couple hundred hectares or whatever, a couple thousand acres kind of thing. You know, uh, they got rhinos and giraffes and monkeys and stuff like that. And there's an educational center there. So to kind of lay it out, um, you would drive through the the main gate where they have rangers and stuff. You go down into the valley, come up the other side. It's actually about 20 minutes drive on the nature reserve. It's that big to get to where the educational center is. And you got like kind of buildings laid out in a line. So you got uh, on one end, you have like a dining hall slash education um, facility. Then you have a dormitory where students can stay. Um, then you have like sort of washroom and shower facilities and then tucked off to the side. kind of So it's kind of an L-shape. You have an instructor's cabin. And so if you can kind of picture that L-shape layout. Um, so we're, we're teaching our students every day. They live out there in the dormitories. We live out there in the instructor's cabin. And so one night I'm walking back from, everyone's in the dining hall, so in the far end of the buildings, the, the sort of uh, cluster of buildings. And I'm walking back to the dining, sorry, the instructor's cabin, which is the furthest building away from any other buildings. Um, it's it's in August, uh, which is the wintertime down there, the southern hemisphere, and it's dark out. And uh, I'm in flip-flops, sweatpants, like it's, you know, we're in a great mood, we're loving the work we do, or, you know, really connected with our students, like it was, it, we really, really enjoyed what we did. And I get back to the cabin and the door is slightly ajar, and... It didn't register at first because I'm thinking, you know, when we're out there, I'm like, hey, we're on a nature reserve. We've got rangers who are armed, all this kind of stuff. Like, it didn't occur to me that, you know, someone jimmied the door. And then so I opened the door, and there's three guys inside the cabin. And they're actually sitting down at the table drinking um, rooibos tea. Rooibos is Afrikaans for red bush. Um, it's a type of a common type of tea that's consumed down there and eating rusks, which are these hard biscuits that you dip in your tea. And, uh, you know, I remember looking at them and being like, like, what are you doing in my cabin? <laughs> like, it still didn't register in my brain that, like, something's really wrong with the situation yeah. here. And I looked at one of them and I was like, I know you because he's one of the Rangers. Um, I didn't see the fourth guy who was outside the cabin. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, and then and then all of a sudden, crack, something hits me across the skull, like, across the forehead And this guy just cracked me across the head with a rock. So these three other guys jump up out of the table, and now they're all coming at me. And I'm, like, stunned because I just got hit across the head with a rock. And, you know, I I remember, like, vividly, the the part that sticks out in my head the most is this guy grabbing. I'm wearing, like, a colored sort of golf shirt. Now That's what I was wearing back then. And him grabbing, like, the color of my shirt with one hand, and I, I look at him in the eye, and he's smiling as he's swinging this rock at my head again. And, you know, crack hits me across the skull again. You know, foreheads bleed pretty easily. And so now blood is, like, streaming down my face. And and I'm stunned. I mean, you get hit with a rock. Like, um, yeah, I was, like, stunned. Like, what, you know, what the hell is going on here? Like, this is seriously wrong. So so
0: the the, one of the guys who worked there was in on it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So they would have, they would have seen us oh. passing like the gate every day driving or every week like driving into the nature reserve and been like there are these white guys out there these white instructors because this was a, a black on white crime this was this wasn't connected to me they, they didn't know Jonathan they didn't know who I was they just knew that there's like some white people out there
0: so they, that was the only reason they just came to assault you it was just that, well because of your skin color yeah
1: they they beat to death a farmer the night before so. Wow. Yeah, and then they apparently they cut a hole in the fence, or I don't know, maybe the rangers let them, the, the ranger that was so you know, the rangers are
0: just letting in their friends just to if, you know they give them some side cash or something. And.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to know exactly, or what you know, and so I like I, I got knocked to the ground. I'm like stunned, you know, faces bloody. Like I'm I'm like trying to figure out what the hell's going on, screaming for help, and nobody can hear me because they're all in the dining hall. That's like a few hundred feet away. Everyone's loud and talking and having grand the time, and I'm getting stomped, and these guys are you know. In one sense, it's probably like it's probably a good thing that they wanted to beat me to death um, because it bought me time. <laughs> because they had knives, they could have just stabbed me to death. Yeah. Um, but it's it's again a cultural thing. So if you think about a power dynamic, this is them holding power over me, and they want to draw out the suffering as much as possible. They want me to suffer while they're trying to kill me, so that I'm I'm alive and aware that like they are dominating me.
0: just yeah, give you a slow, uh, miserable death, basically. Yeah. Like a yeah. death of a thousand cuts almost or whatever it's yeah. called. Yeah.
1: So it's, you know, I, I, the way that I would sort of describe it is, um, I was a representation of something they would have felt had historically oppressed them. And so they are destroying what they feel was historically oppressing them. And so, you know, uh, thankfully I'm a pretty big guy and you know, I'm stunned and you know, hollering for help. No one's coming. Not really sure what's going on here, but I managed to fight my way to my feet. You know, um, like I managed to roll over to to, to my uh, on, onto my stomach and get onto my hands and knees and kind of kind of get to my feet. And and then I was able to kind of took off, sort of stumble, crawl, run. You know, just get moving in the direction of the building. And for some reason, they didn't pursue me. I don't know why. And because uh, they they could have easily caught me and just carried on beating me. Yeah. And, uh, for some reason they didn't pursue me. Um, I got into the building and, uh, you know, so I said, I've, I've, been attacked. Like, I don't know how many are out there and, you know, just like chaos kind of ensues because we've got 25 students in there. We've got another facilitator, um, as well as my wife and myself, you know, and they see, like, I'm just covered in, like my face is covered in blood. Like they said, the forehead bleeds really easily. If you've ever watched any MMA, oh, you'll yes. see how easy Yeah,
0: I've watched it a lot. Yeah, I've seen it.
1: You know. Um, and one of the, well, I had a cut like right under my eye. You can't really see the scar, um, but they just narrowly missed my eyeball with one of the hits, uh, with the rock, um, that could have blinded me. So there's a lot, a lot that could have gone worse. Um, anyways, so we, we got ourselves barricaded in this building. We shot off the lights. We got like tables and a fridge against one set of doors or tables against another set of doors. Like, um, I'm, I'm pretty stunned still. Like I'm, I'm my head swimming. Like, yeah, uh, I don't knocked
0: wh- out? I mean,
1: yeah. I'm, I think I stayed the thick part of my skull or something, man. Like uh, there's a lot of things that sort of uh, kind of went my way yeah. in a situation like this. That That's why I'm here today is, is what I'll say, um, which sounds ironic considering like they were trying to beat me to death. <laughs> But yeah, the fact that they didn't manage to knock me out, um, the fact that they didn't chase me for some reason, and that kind of stuff, the fact that they didn't have guns because they could have just been shooting us through the windows, um, that kind of stuff. So my wife was like busy arming all the women with pots and pans, got them boiling water like so we can throw boiling water on them if they run through the doors like we're arming ourselves for war kind of thing. and they're out there they got like shovels and they're trying to smash the doors down. and again, we don't know how many are out there because they all travel in packs of 10 to 15 guys right. Um, Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And so thankfully someone had a cell phone and, um, managed to somehow, now the police are corrupt down there too. And so there's a lot of like, wow, you know, it just so happened that a senior police officer was walking by a phone that rang on someone's desk and went and picked it up and they actually dispatched somebody. And so here we are, we're like, we don't know how many are out there. We're all thinking like, are we going to die? You know? you know, how many are out there, if they break in, like, this is war, we're fighting to the death kind of thing. Like, yeah. we're trapped in this building, hoping they don't have guns, trying to sort of stay out of line of sight. Like, it was just this, it was just a crazy sort of situation. We're basically being held hostage in this building. And uh, so, the thing is, is you can see um, across the valley. So, when the, when the, when the cops start driving it onto the reserve, they have their lights on, they're flashing, like, you can see from 20 minutes away that these guys are coming. So, these, these attackers just kind of melt into the bush, just disappear. Cause they, they see, okay, let's, let's make our, make our way out of here kind of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: They're not far away, but they've just disappeared in the bush and they're going to be pretty hard to find. Cause got a ranger with them. And, uh, the cops show up and, uh, they're just kind of took a look around and go, well, nobody died. Nobody got raped. So, all right, cool. I guess we'll just carry on. They're probably gone. And my wife was like, are you effing nuts? Yeah. <laughs> like, like my husband needs to get to a hospital and get assessed he's concussed and bleeding um some people saw their faces these guys tried to kill him like they're out there they didn't just disappear on this 200 hectare reserve or however big it you know like you're going to take some statements and figure out what was you know and so on and we're not staying here tonight and you are not leaving until we are all out of here <laughs> wow. so my wife was incredible like she was so strong in all of this like she was uh, I mean, she must've been just like ramped up on so much adrenaline after all this was happening kind of thing. Fight or you know,
0: right, I guess,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. And so because of that, like she was like telling these cops what to do <laughs> and they actually listened. It was, it was crazy. Cause these cops are incompetent. Like they found a knife and picked it up. She's like, you guys clearly don't watch CSI, you know, <laughs> She's, you know, that kind of thing. Right. It's just like, they weren't even trying. And so anyways, uh, we, we all got ourselves sort of off the property. Um, but there's, there's some things that that of this whole experience that I look back because this happened on a Monday night. It was August fifteenth, two thousand eleven, and um, I remember that morning coming out, uh, going out to the cabin because we'd stay in town on the weekend. and We came out to that cabin and being like, "Man, the cabin's kind of messy. We'll have to talk to the weekend facilitators and tell them, you know, maybe tidy up and don't leave the cabin in such a mess for when we come in." I think these guys were in the bush and they'd already ransacked the cabin once, and then they were kind of hiding in wait. Um, now that we think about it, we're like, do you remember there was a helicopter flying over the reserve that morning? There was actually people looking for these guys because they'd beat a white farmer to death the night before. The cop said they smashed his head in like a pumpkin. And it's like, thank you for the visual. I really needed that. Yeah. Um, so there were people that knew that there were guys out there who would murdered somebody and they were hunting for it. But nobody thought to let us know as we're going out there with our students to be like, Hey, uh, there's some murderers on the loose here and we're yeah. hunting for them kind of thing. Like, just all of these massive failures, but that's what happens in a corrupt system where where a lot of people just don't care. You know, they're just there in a job to collect a paycheck and trying to avoid getting hurt. So
0: Yeah, I mean if you if you did have a good cop, I mean, you know, and I support the police a hundred percent, but if you did probably have a yeah. good cop come around there, I mean then they're making themselves and their families just as uh vulnerable as anyone yeah. else there. So yeah, they're putting themselves at risk just trying to do a good job even.
1: Yeah. You know, so like over here, I, I mean, I've got a ton of respect for police. Uh, I've, I've put on a uniform. Uh, I, w- I served for six years um, in the Navy. Like anyone who puts on a uniform, um, I, have, I have a world of respect um, sure. for, for any veterans out there, any, any active duty members. Like I, I, uh, I don't want anyone to misunderstand thinking I'm disrespecting police, but I'm saying down there in South Africa, it's not the same. They don't have the same code of conduct. They don't have the same morals and ethics and things like that, you know. Um, anyway, so. I, I mean, I basically got cleaned up at the hospital. I'm concussed. There's not much they can do, like, other than, like, you know, rest, take it easy. You know, you got your bell rung. They didn't fracture your skull. Um, they didn't, you're, you're bruised, but they didn't break any bones. Like, I'm glad they didn't break any ribs. Like, how many kicks to the ribs can you take? Um, you know, so, I mean, it, it ended sort of well, but, I mean... Uh, so we stayed back in South Africa for like another four months, continuing on at this job, but we didn't live out on the reserve anymore. We drove in and out every day. We're like, we're not staying there overnight. Um, it's just not happening, but we couldn't tell our students and other cohorts of students what happened. We weren't allowed to, we were like forbidden from speaking about this kind of thing. Um, anyways. Uh, so, so that's what got me on the path of like eating food to deal with my trauma. Cause you know, right after the incident, we're like, they don't win. They don't get to win. We're strong. We can deal with this, that kind of thing. But like my wife and I are living alone in this house in South Africa. And you got to, you know, after this incident, we're like, we're feeling pretty vulnerable and exposed, even though we've got a panic button, we've got private armed security, um, that comes basically the push of a button. You know, they usually, their response time is under five minutes. And so basically one of us would sleep while the other one would be on watch and we'd, we sleep in shifts. Um, so it just feels like you're living in a war zone essentially. And, uh, you know, um, one of the brothers of another instructor, uh, he got locked in a building. They set it on fire and burned him to death. Like, you know, like stuff like that. They they broke into the place, stole all the copper pipes out of the house we were living. In. Like, literally cut out all the copper pipes, so we didn't have running water. Yeah. Um, it's just stuff like this kept happening until eventually we're like, uh, I'm gonna kill somebody. Like, I'm legit going to set traps to bait them to break into my house so I kill them. Like, that's the that's where I was going mentally, and I was like, we have to get out of here. Because this is not who I am, it's not like no, I'm All like right. I, I served in the military, but I hoped I never had to actually like take another human life, you know, and I think anybody any like upstanding individual who joins the military is like we want to serve and protect we want to, we would like to deter like loss of life of course, and so. Anyway, it, it, so like we, we flew back to Australia where my wife's from Australia. We flew back there and kind of went there to psychologically decompress from everything that had happened because, and I, I got working on like a cotton farm, but this time I was, I was 330 pounds. Like I was full on obese. And, uh, but I was still, there's a lot of like denial, um, with trauma, you get kind of, um, trapped in that moment and your life it's like your life, hit, like a pause buttons hit in your life. And you don't move forward with your life. We now understand a lot about PTSD. You know, you think back to there's a there's a really good book by Bessel van der Kolk called um, the the Body Keeps Score. I believe that's the title. And uh, it's it's quite a quite a deep, hard, and heavy read, yeah. but it's incredible the insights it lends into like trauma sufferers and those who've been through PTSD and whatnot. You wonder why, like you know, say a Vietnam War vet, for example, still thinks they're back in Vietnam because their brain basically got frozen in time by that trauma. And so that was kind of what was going on with me in my brain. Um, Yes, I was sort of functioning in day-to-day life. I could function with people. I could interact with people. They they think they're interacting with me and that kind of thing. Well, secretly, there's kind of a hell taking place in my head because with trauma, you really have the incident repeatedly trying to rewrite the story. If I knew this, I would have done this and so on. Um, Really the feelings of terror, of fear, of like confronting my mortality, like, you know, am I going to die tonight? All this kind of stuff. Like it's, it was, and so... I, I had enough sense not to turn to drugs or alcohol. Um, but I understand why people do because that's like a – that's an escape. Yeah, it's, so, it's like I can't
0: – It's so easy to get those too. And
1: Yeah. I can't shut my head off. It's the only way I can make yeah. my brain stop showing me the things that I don't want to see. And so for me, that became food. Um, and, and, and I kind of became like this this jolly fat guy, I say. I kind of adopted this uh, identity of jolly fat guy at a certain point where it was yeah. like um, – I would show up at an event people are like, Hey, John's here. Hey, we got some extra ribs, you know, Hey, clean these up, man. Hey, there's one more burger patty. Yeah. Clean it up, man. Yeah. We know you like this. So people out of the, you know, cause we, we use food to show hospitality, sure. but that's kind of what we do in, in, in the Western world. And, and people didn't realize they, cause I was, you know, deeply ashamed of my behavior, but I felt out of control in terms of being a binge eating food addict. Like it's, it's a compulsive behavior that's, um, it's hard to explain if someone hasn't suffered from it because it doesn't make logical sense because it doesn't come from a logical part in the brain that's the thing it doesn't it comes from a totally different area of the brain and so people didn't realize they were enabling my behavior when they're like you know hey you, you just boy that dessert disappeared quickly you must yeah. have really liked it you yeah, better have another they're, serving they're, of it
0: i think they're being friendly and you know yeah. not, like hospital, yeah. like you said but you are really you know you're suffering inside
1: <laughs> yeah so all of that is kind of the backstory, uh, and 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 really so it was 2013, we kind of finished our world tour, I guess you could call it, um, and came back to Canada to live, and, and kind of from 2013 to 2017 was just this real struggle, um, well I mean there were struggles before that, but even coming back to Canada to um, the deal with my weight and everybody would see me differently because the guy that left Canada you know, in 2010 wasn't this fat guy, <laughs> it was a, it was a you know, 200, 210 pound athlete. And the guy that came back was this over 300-pound, like, guy that was pasty and puffy and stressed and, like, I wasn't the same person. Yeah. So, try to reintegrate back and, like, it couldn't go back to even my old life in a sense.
0: You know, I was having dinner with a friend about two weeks ago and uh, we were talking about the brain and, like, getting impacts, you know, from, like, well, basically we got on a conversation with – you know football players and their injuries with CTE, and like how it yeah. actually can change a person's personality with just that impact, and even soccer players who are headbutting yeah. soccer ball. I mean, do you think <clears throat> those blows to the head from the rocks could have like changed you, like as far as personality and?
1: Hundred percent, yeah. Really, <laughs> it's it's hard. To, I mean, because we never really think about it like before. It can kind of be hard to to pin it down. But, like, um, interestingly, my wife used to call me the Tin Man. Um, and, it, it, you, you know, it's not that I'm heartless, but, but <laughs> like, I, I didn't show a lot of emotion. Um, so prior to that incident, but I think really a lot of it was just kind of suppressed because, again, it had to do with sort of my perspective on masculinity, my views about it, and, and my views about emotions and so on. And so I kept a lot of things hidden. Everything was very controlled. And after the incident, it became a lot harder to control things because these these emotions, these feelings, the rage, and then all these flashbacks and stuff come out of nowhere and blindside you. And, uh, I wasn't able to control things in the same way. So I don't know if my personality was permanently altered as much as like, I became an angrier, more frustrated person. And, but then I also tried to to hide that from people because I knew that if they saw that side of me, like they wouldn't want to be around me. And I wasn't a very nice person to be around. Um, and, and I just have to give a shout out to my wife. We've been together for 16 years and she's never left my side. Like through all of this, she's watched me go from being like an athlete. She married this guy that had abs and athletic and strong and young and to a guy that, you know, went through trauma and became obese and became, you know, she's never left my side. She, so I'm fiercely loyal to her for that reason.
0: You got you a good one. It sounds like for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I give a shout out to her. For sure, thanks to her. Um, you talked about PTSD a little bit ago, and I wanted to get your thoughts on something. So, when we talked about MMA a little bit, well, we said about MMA, but anyway, yeah, yeah. um, I think, and folks, if I'm getting this wrong or completely butchered, don't get mad at mm. me, but anyway, I think <laughs> Johns Hopkins University is actually starting to do studies where they're actually giving people with PTSD psilocybin mushrooms just to yeah. help cope with that. Um. With PTSD, and I think it's actually starting to show some improvements in some areas. I could be way off base here, but I think there are starting to show that there is some, some logic to it.
1: Yeah, so there is – so there's something really interesting about sort of hallucinogenic compounds. Um, even LSD, like microdosing LSD is another interesting one mm-hmm. um, because – any sort of substance, there's there's a threshold where it can become you know harmful, or there's a threshold where there's there's a risk of abuse of a substance. I mean, you do this alcohol, you can abuse caffeine, you can abuse sugar, you can, and so on. There's kind of this hesitation to explore the medicinal properties or possibilities of these things, and there could there's like maybe some some struggles around the morality of it because you know normally let's say uh, magic mushrooms, for example, they're they're normally hallucinogens that you you eat at a party to to trip. Not, but what I imagine is that they and I don't. Uh, I can't. I can't claim to have a deep understanding of this. But what I sort of picture happening is, it can drive like new connections in the brain. So the brain has, uh, you know, this fabulous property called neuroplasticity—the ability to basically rewire itself. Yeah. You know, that's really it's incredible. And so I wonder if this, uh, you know, you think about like when you sleep and you have these dreams and you combine these sort of. You'll have these dreams and you go, I don't know where the heck that came from. But your brain is like mashing together multiple stories and creating multiple narratives and it comes out in this weird wacky dream while it's forging like new connections in your brain. And I wonder if something like psilocybin is facilitating a process like this of neuroplasticity where you're kind of rewriting stories and narratives and building something um, different than – a different structure in your brain than than previously existed.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the – you know, we don't have to go down this road but we can kind of <laughs> hit on it. But, you know, like with Stone 8 theory, I mean that's kind of – what part of the reason, like if you want to believe we evolved or believe whatever you want to, but that's part of the belief that, you know, psilocybin actually made our, like you just said, rewire our brains and make us grow and actually guess make us smarter. So,
1: yeah, yeah, um, that's, yeah, I I wouldn't. I, I say I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to offer an educated opinion on that on that perspective. And so, I'm not a
0: big. I just that's just about the basis of how I know of it. But anyway, it's just, yeah. you know, and I think they're fun theories and they're fun and but yeah, um, absolutely. I, you know, and I like just gabbling into them and just you know well, maybe it could be some thoughts into that. But I'm still trying to figure out for myself like what you know what exactly do I. yeah, think yeah. I think
1: about it, be be open minded and be curious, right? Yeah, because yeah. that's. You know, it's it's very often those who would go against um, kind of like a mainstream narrative that uncover something that's really interesting. Um, I I remember saying to someone because I'm again, I'm a former research scientist and I just say, look, consensus is not the same thing as being right. Yeah. And it seems like in today's social media age where there's kind of mob rule, you know, you say something that goes against a particular narrative that people are emotionally attached to. Mm -hmm. It goes against consensus and you get ridiculed. But this is, I mean, social media has only amplified this tendency in human beings. You look at scientists throughout history, you know, um, Galileo or Avogadro, or, you know, they came up with theories and the sort of the elitist, snobby scientists were like, no, that's not possible, <laughs> um, you know, and ridiculed them and tried to get them shut down because they were, and you think like, why were, they, why were they scared of sort of uncovering something new or novel, you know, but... Uh, that's kind of what we see even happening today is this unwillingness to be open-minded and think critically. And I think it's a problem with social media culture in particular, thinking about what it does to the brain. Um, Social media algorithms are based, like we live in what's known as the attention economy. So we want to draw people's brains in, we want to keep their eyeballs focused on our content so we can show them more ads and so on. This sort of pay-per-click model, it's the same with digital media as well. So because of that, everything that's the most emotive that triggers the most primal parts of our brain, the fear and stress response that triggers us and makes us feel like we need to know more about this so we can keep ourselves safe. We don't actually think consciously about that, but that's kind of what's taking place. Well, that that really creates, that's why there's such polarization and division, I think, in society today, because people are getting so emotionally triggered over things if they're unaware that this is, this is the system that's built in place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you're aware of it, it still can be a challenge. You know, um, I've, I, I look back at what I used to write on social media a few years back and I actually go back and I've deleted a lot of my past posts and I'm like, I was dumb. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I was yeah. dumb and emotional. Oh yeah, and, and I'd rather that stuff not be kept on record. I'm
0: a hundred percent with you. I'm a hundred percent with you. I mean, that's just like last week. I think it was last week when Facebook went down mm. and Instagram yeah. went down and then you know, if you, conspiracy theorists might say it was cause that whistleblower came out and said, Hey, Facebook's algorithm is actually there to actually make you promote hate, and uh, you know just wants to antagonize you to actually and that's how they get their your likes and comments and stuff. And then all of a sudden Facebook went down, and it's like, oh no, that's not how it was. But they they yeah. were more about you know the money obviously than I guess safety I guess is a good way to, yeah it way
1: to I it. mean now now that being said like I'm I'm a cause I'm a student of human behavior <laughs> as and like really I I focus on what I call brain driven weight loss when I work with clients in weight loss uh, so so really I, I like to take kind of a psychology based approach to all of this and so I I kind of looked at this with a skeptical lens and uh, I said a, a true whistleblower would probably need like FBI protection you know. That from a sense. powerful company like Facebook. And so I, th- I thought this one didn't totally pass the smell test for me. Um, if anything, it felt like a little bit of a setup where uh, like, ooh, you, you know, it's like a red herring. It'd, like distract you over here with this whistle being blown. Well, like Facebook is doing something over here that they don't want you to know about kind of thing. Right. So it was like, make it appear as though, oh, my gosh, like and I was expecting sort of this contrite post to come out. uh, And I think Mark Zuckerberg did write this like sort of contrite post or whatever. It actually read more like a propaganda piece. But, (laughs) you know, but it kind of just felt like like that was a bit of a setup, like a a, a soft like a soft lob to Facebook to be like, here, you can rehabilitate your image. We have this whistleblower come out saying these things, which on one hand sort of sound bad. But on the other hand, it's like I, I think the. The, the whistleblower was pushing for further. I, did, I actually didn't. i never even read this story, but I'm inclined to think the the whistleblower is pushing for like further censorship of discussion, like suppression of speech, mm-hmm. on these platforms. I'm and like uh, I'm kind of an advocate for open speech, which is uh, probably a controversial position to hold. But my when you my say, feeling oh, you is free,
0: like free speech. I mean,
1: yeah, that, oh, okay. yeah,
0: yeah. I'm with you. Go ahead.
1: Because I, I think you need these idiots to speak their extremist pieces in the public square so they can be taken down. If you shut them out from the discussion, it's like, it's like if you cut out a man's tongue, you don't prove him wrong. You just prove you're scared of what he has to say.
0: <laughs> I like that. That's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that was Tyrion Lannister on Game of Thrones. If <laughs> oh, I'm <not> mistaken. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happens is then you get the pro- proliferation of these other platforms, right? Uh, and it's funny because I have a, I have like a – I say a very minor presence on some of these other social media platforms because I'm like, ah, you never know. They could become big. They probably won't. But like, you know, Getter and Gab and MeWe and uh, what else? Parler and and stuff. I think I have a combined audience and all these other alternate platforms of about eight people. So I'm like, <laughs> I joke about, joke about my huge audience on these platforms. But um, the reality is you're going to push discussion to another realm is all you're going to do. And you're going to push these people into an echo chamber – and they're going to, once they're in an echo chamber, it's going to amplify and you're going to lead to more extreme behavior. Whereas if you allow it in the public square where you can call it out and debate it and discuss it and so on, um, you're actually less likely to have extremism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other part of it, I think, is um, when, when did we become like so fragile in terms of like somebody said something mean? What happened? Because, man, like you probably went through. I went through bullying. Like oh, yeah. and I'm not saying bullying is good. I'm not I'm not advocating for it. But there's something to be said for encountering adversity and building strength of character. And so, you know, interestingly, as a side note, I'm like I have a 10 minute ice cold shower every day because I want to maintain a degree of resilience in the face of discomfort. And I feel like that's lacking in, in like our social media realm. Have you – I'm
0: glad you brought that up. So there's a book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Have you read that? I've heard the title. I haven't read it. Okay. But
1: but, uh, it it sounds like it would be right up my alley.
0: (laughs) So it's basically kind of um, what – yeah, what you're just – you were speaking on. Like Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, I think, wrote it. And like one piece he's actually talking about was that – I think it was – I forget when the year the study was done. But it was giving kids – they were not giving kids peanuts for so long. And then – they actually did another group of where they actually had the peanuts and they didn't develop any you know, allergies to peanuts over time. But the ones who didn't get peanuts from, I forgot what age on, is why they kept getting allergic to peanuts. And then, then they started to develop other foods. But yeah. and, and then they made a case for, and I don't know if this was part of the book, but then in another study they did was uh, as far as bullying. that Yeah, bullying sucks and I'm not advocating for it and there's, it should not be there. But they're saying should students, or not students, or just children wow. or anybody actually have to go through some sort of type of bullying or hardship in their lives to actually, you know, find out who they are and find out, come out ahead of it, you know, instead of just, okay, hey, I can actually fight through this rather than just let it beat me down. And then whenever I get, whenever I feel offended, I can just weaponize it, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, this, like, I feel like there's a loss of critical thinking for one and a loss of kind of resilience And you pair that with our digital media environment that I do think is more emotionally and mentally stressful than ever before in human history. And so never before have our brains been potentially assaulted with like so much information. I say assaulted because like it's a 24 hour, like it's an endless stream of like emotive content that, that will be triggering our brain and feel overwhelming. Um, So it's kind of like this, this powder keg, but it seems like the response is very infantile. Like, Let's try and wrap them in bubble wrap. But it's like, how does a muscle get stronger? It it, it goes against resistance. How do we make our bones stronger? We put them against resistance. Correct. And so I would rather see us teach people how to cultivate character. And I think like character can come from like moral strength, like having a set of morals that you live by or values yeah. that you live by that you make that your, your, your compass because opinions of people are not will shift all the time. And when you try to make your, your compass, the opinions of other people, you're, you're always going to be missing the mark and you're always going to feel lost and aimless and frustrated and angry. But when you make your kind of, you set your, your moral compass to this, a a set of values that don't change. Like if it's loyalty, honesty, integrity, whatever, like I say, my top two values are integrity and compassion. I try to filter everything that I do through those two values. Um, they they don't change. So I'm not changing what I what I believe because opinions of people change. It's like did I act with integrity? Am I true to my word? Am I true to my beliefs? And did I act with compassion? And compassion is not a get out of jail free card. But it's like I, did I seek to understand the human behavior, you know, before I before I uh, pass judgment on what I see?
0: I like how you said that. That was that made a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know why it just makes zero. I mean, what doesn't make sense is that it seems like. We can't sit down and have these type of you know discussions nowadays without getting, <laughs> yeah. you know without trying to find <clears throat> hate into it, where we can just have a yeah. civil. And even if you know, even if you and I don't agree on something, I mean, there's no reason. Okay, that's fine. We can still sit down and you yeah. know uh, have a why civil we, debate or civil talk about it. It's no big deal. Why do we
1: become afraid of that? <laughs> I,
0: I, I, yeah, you know. There's a lot of things that are going on now that. I don't want to say in education, but maybe some politics, but yep. you know, even in the news that they don't want to talk about certain things just because they're afraid of the backlash and like of losing their jobs or being yeah. missing, being labeled as something that they're not, even though that they're an advocate for it.
1: Yeah. Well, if you want to take a deep dive into <laughs> in, into um, uh, say questionable territory, um, I came across something recently that I thought was was really interesting. I don't recall where I heard it, but it says when. A tyrant fears an external threat, they masculinize their population. When a tyrant fears an internal threat, they feminize their population. Wow. I was like, that is a pretty interesting thought. I like that. Because what's happening in China and Russia by in another capacity, China is like trying to hyper-masculinize their men. They've banned like feminine men. Really? Like you cannot have any, yeah, they're I shutting down. This. They had a culture based <laughs> on those sissy boys, which is like very feminine men. And this culture was growing in popularity and China's put a, you know, if they're authoritarian rule and don't, don't take this as me thinking China is a good thing. <laughs> you know, I think the CCP acts like a psychopath. Um, if, if the CCP or the Chinese communist party was a human being, it would be a psychopath. Um, no moral conscience whatsoever. But they put a ban on that and they are actively trying to masculinize and hyper-masculinize their men. So what does that tell you? They're building up their armed forces. They're masculinizing their men. Because like it or not, there's a biological reality that if you go into battle, like, and and you try and put men against women, who's going to win? It not that, that right there, that statement could be deemed as, I don't know, hate speech or something like that. Just acknowledging a biological reality that men produce more testosterone, we have bigger lung capacity, we develop more musculature. These are biological realities. This is not hate speech.
0: Yeah, it's, there's just like, science to it.
1: Yeah. yeah. You can ask my wife who 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 spent seven years learning self-defense. Like, you know, would she rather go into a fight against a woman or a man?
0: <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. yeah same. Way. Right. Yeah. I mean, she'd
1: rather not be to fight at all. Yeah. But it's like, so we look at what's happening culturally in North America and we actually see a sort of a, a very sort of feminizing of our population altogether. And again, people are like, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm waiting to like, <laughs> you know, shady or, or sketchy territory here, sort of identifying this, but it's like, we see a weakening of character, mm-hmm. uh, a, a sort of a demonization of masculinity when, when in fact masculinity is a really, or can be a really powerful attribute, uh, you know, contribute and, and contributors to society. And we're seeing it sort of being torn down. And I say like, I I feel like very new in this realm, but I feel myself wanting to be an advocate for what I call positive masculinity because I think most times we hear that word, we hear the word toxic attached to it, sort of identifying um, unwanted male behaviors that aren't good. But I think a lot of these unwanted male behaviors actually come from like sort of infantilizing our population. They behave like emotional idiots oh, yeah. rather than. You know, and there's one thing I, maybe I sort of learned in traveling around the world is other cultures actually have sort of a transition from boyhood to manhood, where when you become a man in that culture, there's certain expectations placed upon you because you are no longer a boy. You are an adult. And in our sort of hedonistic culture where we're constantly pleasure seeking, um, what do we got? We've got an obese population that wants to eat junk food and Netflix and celebrate everything but being strong. That sets, I mean, so that's going to bring about, uh, you know, it sounds dramatic, but I mean, really kind of the, the, like the U.S. is going to lose its, its, and maybe this is a good thing, I don't know, but their their status as like the world's number one superpowers is is kind of on the brink. And it's 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 sort of an inevitable fall off the ledge because the population has been weakened.
0: Well, that's part of, you know, you could say, you know, if you want to get conspiracy theory talking again, but that was part of like China's overall goal is to become the number one superpower. And and they, and there was, there was some, thing i saw or heard it on another podcast but there was like a christian facebook group that was hugely big and hugely big it was very big and that yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but if the, the moderators or the admins of the group were actually controlled for, i think were from russia and they're actually just russian bots or something and it was all these americans just full of this group and it was just what the hell are we getting into here but yeah but yeah i mean that's one thing i mean i guess you could say if it's a, <clears throat> a strategy of war but they're trying to Get at oh, yeah. us from, insi- in, from the inside out, you know, and, and get us, you know, fighting against ourselves. And. Yeah.
1: And you know what? It makes perfect sense. I don't mean it's good, but I like to say that all behavior makes sense, right? So if you, if you kind of look at through an understanding of the human brain and human behavior, you go, yeah, if I was this kind of person, that behavior makes sense, you know? And so if China wants to be a superpower, like China – like I said, China is a pathological liar, right? So mm-hmm. like – Or or the Chinese Communist Party, if it was a human being, would be a psychopath or a pathological liar without conscience. That's how they behave. They behave equivalent to a psychopath. And so this is why they lie about everything. I mean, China's in one sense, it's built on on corruption and lies and there's a lot. They're not nearly as stable as they might be made out to be. But it was kind of ironic that like there's people in China that laugh at Americans who watch the news because they're like, we don't watch the news. We all know it's propaganda. We're not stupid. (laughs) <laughs> like you haven't figured out that the news is propaganda and so I kind of I kind of look at this and and, and I don't like in one sense I'm kind of not bothered by it because I'm like look this is the ebb and the flow of humanity I could I could sort of get worked up get angry about this or try and fight you know it, it's like trying to swim upstream in like a tidal wave like it's just it's just not happening like th- this is the direction things are going but it's just kind of an observation and I'm like well when we Like, like I am, I am Christian, um, but I'm really moderate about it. Uh, I don't really widely publicize it. I kind of just go about my business. I don't belong to a denomination. It's just, I would say like, it's a moral code that I try to live by. And I feel like I'm still learning every day in terms of how to live by this moral code, right? It's, so it's for me. And I would say, it feels like when we drift away from some kind of moral code, which is really what's happening, uh, a society would like lose its strength. And, and this is not to say that like, like there's plenty of wacky, like the U.S. Is, is like the, like the king of like wacky Christians. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes on there. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know where you guys came from. But, oh, yeah. you know, So there's, there's a lot of nuttiness that happens down there. But, you know, and the thing that maybe we could say about conspiracy theories is they grab our attention. I believe that most conspiracies are in plain sight. They're really boring and really unexciting and they're happening in plain sight. While we think that there's some sort of, I don't know, secret cabal meeting in the basement of a pizza shop, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like, or, or that like a nasal swab for COVID is like putting nanobots into our brain. Like if that was really happening, like that would be like an incredibly terrifying reality. So the thought of that really grabs our attention because we go, oh my gosh, that would be terrifying if it was true that if, that if I got a nasal swab for COVID and someone put nanobots into my oh, brain, you know, versus... Um, they just slowly just kind of creepingly introduce laws and omnibus bills that are a thousand pages long that even the senators in Congress don't read and then just this creeping sort of encroachment. Like that's more likely what's happening versus these crazy like wild conspiracy theories. I'm like Occam's razor. What is it? The simplest explanation is very often the right one. Yeah. I never heard that one. But
0: yeah, that, that <laughs> makes total sense. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> so – uh you know, I mean, obviously we, we've kind of spun off in, in, into an interesting direction here and, and I'm kind of, you know, just, just kind of riffing on, you know. That's fine. I'm that's, like, that's what we do on
0: it,
1: here. It's all good. <laughs> that's good. And I'm like, it's, it's funny to talk about this because uh, in the back of my mind, so here's sort of like censorship culture, right? I think about just expressing my thoughts, like even thinking out loud as I speak. And then a part of me goes, man, I wonder if saying this is going to get misinterpreted the wrong way if people hear this publicly oh, and, yeah. you know. But but we can't kind of live in fear of that. It's like no, I'm just trying to understand human behavior here. I don't I don't hold hatred in my heart towards anyone, including the people who tried to kill me. I even forgave them. Like I never saw them again, but I went through the process of forgiveness because I wanted to be free from that experience. So I don't hold vitriol in my heart towards anyone, mostly because I want to I want to live with peace in my heart. So I'm like, you know, that's very um, that's very bold of you. I mean, there's not a lot of people who could do that.
0: I mean, I'm sort of thinking to myself. I mean, could I ever forgive you know those three or four yeah. guys for nearly beating me to death?
1: It's hard Yeah so I mean it is really hard But it kind of came down to this Um, I was in Istanbul, Turkey Where my brother lives He's been there for about 12 years now And I couldn't sleep one night This was maybe about 8 months After the incident happened And I I realized I was just tired of being angry I was tired of every time I really of the incident that like the rage would come up and all these, because again, I'm really not a violent person by nature. Um, I don't, I don't enjoy the thought of inflicting violence. I will, I will defend what I need to defend if I have to, to do it, but I don't want to. Right. Um, I'm really kind of a compassionate empath that hugs just about everybody that I meet. Like that's, that's who I am by nature. So I got tired of being angry and just every time it would come up, I would just have these thoughts of just, and I would even like, part of my brain would like the thought of me like taking, enacting my revenge on them and like doing horrible things to them. And, uh, but I, I didn't want this in my head. So I was like, okay, wh- what do I have to do to kind of like break free from this? And, and really it came down to I have to forgive them. And recognizing that forgiveness is not ab- absolving somebody of what they did, they still have to answer for their actions. But it's me saying like, I am no longer going to hold thoughts of like vengeance in my head towards you. Um, you know, one way or another, you're going to live the life you live. And if they if they choose to live a violent life at some point in time, something's going to get turned, turned around and they're probably going to meet a violent end. But for me to not even wish that on them, ultimately, it meant that I was setting myself free. And I think it, I'm, I'm probably bastardizing a quote, but it's kind of like, um, you know, like wanting revenge or, or holding hatred in your heart is kind of like drinking poison and trying to hurt somebody. And so... I, I and, and the question is like, well, how do you, how do you forgive? And it wasn't like an overnight thing. So I made the decision that I wanted to forgive them. And kind of the next step was every time that these sort of the anger and the rage would come up in my head and these thoughts of vengeance, what I would do is I would actually try to cultivate a sense of compassion for them. So in other words, I would ask the question, what must have happened in their life to bring them to the place where now they're beating people to death? Yeah. Because this isn't, this isn't how a normal human being behaves. This isn't how... This is how a, a damaged traumatized human being behaves, not a healthy, well-adjusted, well-fed, you know. So I'm like, this doesn't excuse their behavior, but at least helps me understand it. And if I can look at it from that perspective, I can then cultivate a sense of forgiveness for 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 them because I really don't believe in my heart that people are born like violent racists. I don't think I think that happens as a result of some kind of conditioning.
0: Yeah, I mean, something where they like you just said, you know, how they grew up, you know what type of parents they have, you know their their environments and you know, and I you know I like how you said that, you know, you're able to you forgive him over time. And just like you talking, I was sitting there thinking about that, you know, from my knowledge that no amount of money ever bought another second of time. So you could just spend your whole life, you know, being upset and being mad. And, yeah, you know, there's bad things that happen to everybody. You know, some things don't go well at work or, you know, your day or just whatever, your workouts, whatever. But, you know, you spend that time just being pissed off about it and upset or you could just – Try to use that time to be more, to put it to use. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But yeah, it's hard, for, it's hard for most people, and I get that. You know, I'm not uh, saying absolutely. it's easy. Yeah, it might be tough for me. Like I said, I don't know. It would be extremely <laughs> tough for me to to find that forgiveness to do it. But could I? Could I do it? Yeah. But I don't know. Like you found it. I don't know. I guess I'm yeah. just saying I don't know if I could find that.
1: Well, the thing that I would say to people is like it's easy to sort of listen to this segment of a story that might go for an hour or something like that. Uh, you know, and and go but what we don't realize is this is spanning a number of years like this wasn't an overnight process this, this whole struggle that I talk about spanned like a decade and so we live in a world where we're sort of conditioned for instant gratification and it's like stuff like this there is no instant gratification yeah. but the struggle is worth it and that's that's what I you know like when I work with people in, with regards to weight loss I'm going look that, like I want to tell you this is fast and easy but I'd be lying to you <laughs> like this is going to be hard and it's going to be uncomfortable, um, but you're not going to be alone in this. And I think that's, what's going to make a difference. So when you listen to us, like, I don't want people to think that somehow, like if they're struggling with something like this, that they should just be able to the next day flip a switch. I'm like, no, this is a process. Like it took time, Oh yeah. but I, ha- I had a desire. Like I-, I-, I wanted more than anything else to kind of be free from, from the anger. Cause you're, you hit the nail on the head. And I'm definitely stealing that. Like no amount of money can buy any, a second of time. I think, back I- I think Iron
0: Man said that or Tony Stark. So don't, You
1: can still I I forgot which one of the movies it was But I was like That's so right Yeah Bad things happen to good people That's life I mean And so like I lost my life savings um, A little over three years ago With uh, the collapse of our business Um, When I You know and and, and okay now I had someone who basically lied to me manipulated me um, took advantage of the fact that I'm an empath he's a sociopath like just played my emotions and I didn't because we don't go into like human relationships thinking this person's a narcissist or a sociopath or or a pathological liar like I'm pretty open. I'm, I'm very friendly to, to, you know, and I, I sort of want to give people a shot and say that, you, you know, see the best in them first. Yeah. That's, you know, that's my approach. Now, when it comes to politics is a bit different. I'm, I'm kind of cynical and, and jaded in that direction, but when it comes to just meeting somebody one-on-one, like I'm pretty open. And so I, I didn't go into this relationship looking for like the behavior of a narcissist. So I didn't even, I, I mean, th- that, that word wouldn't even have like entered my lexicon. And so It took a couple of years of being played emotionally. And my wife pointed out to me, like the, what's happening here isn't right. And I would defend it and be like, no, this isn't the person that I know. But with narcissists, they wear masks. They, they put on, they put on because they don't really have like emotions and feelings. They imitate it. And it's when the mask slips, it is weird. You go, who is this person? This is not the person. Like it is, it is really disconcerting when that happens and you go, oh my gosh, this is a totally different, it's like, it's almost freaky because you see the real person. Yeah. And, uh, but why I'm sharing this is so I remember it was May 9th, 2018. So I remember dates pretty well. And a bailiff had showed up and put a lock on the door. He hadn't been paying the rent. He'd been putting the money somewhere else. I don't know where. And so I remember walking across the parking lot going, what am I going to say to my wife? Like <coughs> we got nothing. I got Nothing. I got a mountain of debt. The money that I invested, I'm never going to see that money again. You know, this future we thought we were building, it's gone. What do you say?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: But weirdly enough, there was kind of this sense of, well, I have nothing left to lose. And so I might as well do that thing that, like, I talked about doing. Yeah. Because I i could not go back to being an employee. Like, if I had to, I, you know, I probably could have, you know, <coughs> done something temporarily to make ends meet. But I just couldn't bring myself to going back to being an employee. Right. I was like, okay. And so that's what got me into starting to build my online business was like, I'm going to build something that somebody can't take away from me. And ultimately that's, that's what I did. Yeah. You started from the, you got to the rock bottom and you decided, Hey, you can either just
0: keep climbing back to the top or like, you just yeah. better just sit here and just take your licks.
1: Yeah. So, so these, I would not take these experiences out of my past. Like some people would look at them and go like, you know, I, I wish I didn't have that happen to me. I'm glad it happened to me. Because I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't have to go through that and sort of, and, and people might, you might think like, like I have this strength of character like I'm no I found the strength of character. I think it actually lies in almost all of us. Like human beings are incredibly resilient, more than we give ourselves credit for. But we're, we're so rarely exposed to true hardship, at least in this part of the world. Like, as we were talking about before, like with, uh, not anti-fragile, but like the coddling in the American mind. Nope. Um. You know, and if I was to go back to my like younger me and and have any advice for him, I would say you're stronger than you think mentally and emotionally, and you can handle more than you think. Great word But about you kind of have to. You get you kind of have to get pushed to your limit to figure out what that is, and it's not going to be fun getting pushed to your limit. That's
0: never, That's what a lot of people do need, though. They just like you, I mean, that was I'm, I love how you just said that because a lot of people don't know their limits until you actually have to get down there and. You get, like, you, yeah. get, you get pushed towards your limits, and then you find out what you're made of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you, you find out where you're lacking as well. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. You, okay, so you find – so I didn't know a thing about building an online business when I got started. Like, where the hell do you start? But I just started, and I was like, okay, I'm going to start talking about this on social media, what I do. I'm going to tell people that I can help them. I've got my own story. I've lost 100 pounds. So let me just, you know, and when I started, it was more like I'd lost, I think 70 pounds, like, and kept off at 70 pounds. So I'd, I, if I was to add up all the weight I'd lost, I would say I've lost like 600 pounds, but <laughs> like, that's because I've lost and gained weight multiple times, you gotcha, know, gotcha. but this was like, this was like the permanent weight loss now, you know? And so when I finally hit the hundred pound mark, I was like, yes, that was like my big goal to have lost and kept off a hundred pounds, you know? Um, I was like, so cool. I have this backstory. A part of me felt daunted because I'm like, I don't look like a fitness model. And so... I'm um, like I'm not me posting pictures like in flexing my abs or you know, uh, squeezing my cheeks in gym shark pants or something like that. You know, like it's just <laughs>
0: you
1: know, like just, just I, I don't have that. And so I was like, well, what do I do? How do I reach people when I can't use like it's not that I'm ugly, um, but it's like I don't have sort of this aesthetic physique that I can sort of draw people in with. Like the perfect, so I got to draw people in, yeah. What you so I got to draw in. people in another way. And so I started writing. And kind of telling my story and expressing my experience. And it really stuck. Like, I was terrified the first time I wrote my story and was like, you know, I'm, hey, my name is John. Like, I'm a recovered food addict. <laughs> like, I used to be obese. I still struggle with my relationship with food. I'm not perfect. Yeah. And uh, But I feel like these struggles mean that I can help you. And the response was, like, massive. <laughs> it was like, I thought I was, I, in my head, going and telling people, sharing my demons, like, they were all going to abandon me, and and kind of the opposite happened. Exactly. They were like, "Oh my gosh, you're human. You get yeah, it. You understand me."
0: You. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, He's a real person. We all. Have, yeah. We go through the same shit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so there's and there's a slippery slope here, and I just feel like I want to I want to mention this too, and that is this whole sort of vulnerability thing. Intent matters when it comes to writing a vulnerable post. If you're writing a post, or it, and maybe I'm speaking to my past self because I felt this slippery slope once or twice there's a temp, like when you write a vulnerable post, you can get a lot of love and a lot of sympathy and it feels pretty good. And you go, Oh my gosh, like maybe I want to stay hurt and wounded because I get all this sort of love and sympathy and so on. So I wanted to be careful that when I write a post that's vulnerable, that I write from a position of strength and not a victimhood. And I think it's important if, you, if, if, if anyone out there runs an online business and is listening to this and thinks like, you know, how do I create content that will like speak to, you know, the, it's like yes, you can write posts about vulnerability, but um, you, you don't want to set people up to to just join you in a pity party. No, you want you want to tell your story and say like, look, but don't be a victim because a victim says I'm powerless.
0: Yeah, I agree hundred percent that you know you're just. I, I mean, because you see some of those things and you're just like you just said, we're just joining a pity party here. But you know, we all go through trials and tribulations, but it's how you overcome those and then like okay. I mean, I, there's nothing more than I love as uh, you know either. Well, I I read about one book a month, but you know, or a good movie where you know the guy gets the girl at the end after overcoming something, and yeah, yeah, you know, just you know, just like there's nothing but a better story that you know, like boxers and athletes that come from nothing and you know they have to work their way up to get to the elite level or whatever. It's just it's a great story and just like hey, yeah, people can do this, but yeah, you got to like maybe change a few things about your life, change a few things about the way you think, and yeah, it can be done. It can be done.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why we share share our stories is to say. This can be done. You you can do it. But um, I almost dislike the before-after culture. <laughs> it's, it's not that I don't post and share sometimes like before-after pictures of my clients to demonstrate like social proof that I know what I'm doing kind yeah. of thing. But I kind of dislike that culture in one sense because it doesn't talk about between the before and after. It doesn't tell you the reality of the journey that it's hard, that it's a struggle, that it's uncomfortable and so on. But it's also worth it. That's what I would say. And so... You know, for me I've got a 7-month-old son. And uh this kid like his limbs don't stop moving. I say I don't get snuggles, I get struggles. Yeah. Like it's not that he doesn't like me, it's that he's so busy trying to get in and at everything. Everything in the mouth, like everything, you know, he wants to be everywhere all at once. He's intensely curious and he doesn't mm-hmm. stop moving. So I realize I'm I'm 39. I'm going to be 40 and this kid's going to be 1. I'm going to be 41, this kid's going to be 2. And these legs under him are going to get bigger and faster and stronger. And this kid is not going to stop moving. Oh, yeah. And so I say, I don't want to be a sideline dad. No. I don't want to be stuck on the couch watching him. I want to be physically present and active in his life. Oh, yeah. I want. To. And so because of that, this is why I keep going. This is why I get up and I jump on my bike and I go for a ride that makes my lungs burn. And my legs burn, and my brain tells me you could you could quit at any time. And I go, I could, but I'm not going to mm-hmm. because I need and I need my conditioning to be <laughs> to be better, so I can keep up with this kid. Yeah. It's why I step into a cold shower, ice cold shower, and go, I don't like this, but I'm going to stay here because I want to cultivate this sense of resilience and strength, um, because I want my kid to see a positive, strong, masculine role model. I love it. And so, where I'm going with this is, we need an emotionally compelling reason to be willing to be uncomfortable that's what will That's what will push us into this, this place of growth. Because growth is inherently uncomfortable. But when we have a reason why it's worth it, so for me, you know, I'm at Costco, and I see a big old bag of chips. And I'm like, I'd love nothing more than demolishing that entire bag of chips. Then I look at my kid, and I go, do I want to be a fat dad on the sidelines? No. This is not, I don't say this to shame anybody. I used to be obese. But I'm like, I don't, I don't want to struggle to tie my shoes. I don't want to struggle to get off the toilet. I don't want to struggle to get up off my hands and knees I don't want to struggle to pick him up.
0: Yeah. Maintain your independence. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so that's why I do it. I don't do it to have abs on social media. I do it because I want to be present in his life.
0: Yeah. And that's what he needs. Yeah. I, yeah. I know we're getting kind of short on time here, but I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, we don't talk about culture and other things, but what's your thoughts on like diet culture, especially with your online business? Yeah,
1: It's, it's a bit of a problem. Um, And and you can say with diet culture comes the counter revolution of health at every size and body positivity. And it's like the pendulum swung a little too hard the other way as well. So I take a stand against diets because diets say I will temporarily change my behavior to achieve a permanent result. Mm -hmm. Can't happen. So we need to break free from that idea. But somewhere we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater where we forgot that actually like lowering our body fat percentage will do a lot for our health. It will lower our risk of illness. It will lower chronic inflammatory conditions. Um, it will a lower risk of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, um, and the dreaded C word, the other C word, you know? So this idea that health at every size got hijacked and infantilized as well. So yes, it's true that that activity shouldn't necessarily be exclusive, that people should be able to, you know, participate and, and adopt healthy behaviors, whatever their size is. But there isn't a time coming where you're going to convince me that slapping another hundred pounds of fat on my body is somehow going to make me equally as healthy as I am right now. And so what needs to happen is maybe a shift in the language. This isn't really about weight loss. I say weight loss is a doorway. It's not a destination. When you understand that weight loss is, it is a, we have a number in our head that maybe we want to weigh. It's a placeholder for a future that we think we can live in, that we want to live in a future where we feel comfortable in our clothes, a future where we're independent and we can do what we want because our mobility is our independence. Without that, like I, I have not met an obese 50 year old who's body positive, you know, (laughs) why? Because they got arthritis and heart disease and diabetes and they're struggling with their health and they're staring on the barrel of getting older and becoming a senior citizen. That's in a, in a scooter. Like, and so we, so I, I think the diet culture in one sense is problematic if it shames people for, for where they got. We want to have compassion because I needed compassion when I was obese, but I didn't need enabling. I don't want people to say, you're fine the way you are, stay obese. That's a lie. It's not healthy. No. And so we need to compassionately take people to a place where this is not about a number on the scale. This is not about attaching your sense of self-worth to that. But it is about recognizing that your your health is is the only – like you only get one kick at this. And so if you don't take care of your health, um, you're going to live a shorter and less fulfilling life. Exactly so that was, bit, that was a bit of an impassioned
0: you – know, That was exactly what I wanted to hear because I, I could not agree anymore with you. I mean that was, that was, that was awesome. Yeah. I, I say we just take it home on that one.
1: All right, man. Well, it's been an absolute, uh, uh, well, an absolute pleasure.
0: Well, um, so, if anybody wants to find you and uh, on the internets and the social medias and all that, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you if you want to give that out, if you if you're not, that's be yeah, awesome totally.
1: Um, freedomnutritioncoach.com. So, if you're interested in in, in weight loss. Um, or more than that, really, it's I, I say it's really about transforming your health. Like weight loss is just the I see people come to me for weight loss, but that's like the cover story. I'm like, we're going to get to what's really going on, and we're going to create transformation in your life, which is a totally different thing than weight loss, and the side effect will be weight loss. Um, so freedomnutritioncoach.com. I do run a I call it a live broadcast podcast a couple times a week. Um, I call it Wellness Unplugged, um, but it is, you know I, I run it live on Twitter, which is no FN Diets, um, YouTube, Freedom Nutrition Coaching uh, Twitch freedom, nutrition, coaching. I think I have one follower on Twitch. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm like high follower on Twitch, (laughs) you know, uh, freedom, nutrition, coaching on Facebook. Um, I don't do a lot on Instagram. I have followers in the presence there, but truthfully, I don't do a lot on Instagram because I'm not really a visual person so much, but, um, or you can just send me a friend request on Facebook, uh, Canadian nomad. So Canadian O M A D is my handle on Facebook. Just shoot me a friend request. Uh, I haven't hit the 5,000 limit and I'm a pretty open and and, and friendly guy. So, um, that's where you can kind of catch these. So wellness unplugged, the whole idea behind it is what I'm calling between the before and after. And the last episode I did was actually, it was really interesting. I chatted with a guy who's, um, uh, got very close to suicide twice because October 10th was world mental health day. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you want to, if you want to talk about, you know, having that conversation about like this uncomfortable human conversation, um, that's kind of the stuff that we that we get into with it, but that's what I want. I want to have these conversations where we're not scared to talk about the human condition. So that's kind of what Wellness Unplugged is about.
0: I applaud you for that. Just those are very tough conversations, and I don't think I've ever experienced one of those. But just I've kind of wondered though if I could even handle something like that. But
1: yeah, no, I mean I never really the guy's name is Jeff Macalino. Um, I'll give him a shout out too. Uh, you know, I really, I said to him, man, like he's 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 got a growing sort of stand-up comedy career, but I'm like, man, you got you got more than than just this, um, because th- there's lots of competition in the world of stand-up comedy. There's not a lot of competition in, you know, talking about suicide prevention from that perspective and being able to bring some comedy into it, but just just really humanizing it as a normal guy. So I'd love to see him do some good stuff.
0: For sure, I agree 100, but. All right. Well, I appreciate you doing this with me. This was, this is very enjoyable. I, I learned a lot <laughs> from you and yeah, you, you've had a, you got a great story, man. I mean, this, this was awesome. Oh
1: man. Yeah. I love conversations like this. Um, I had no idea where it was going to go, but we covered a lot of good stuff and, and you give me some things to think about as well. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, sir. And uh, yeah, if you
0: don't have anything else, we'll just, we'll call it, we'll call it a good, good night right there. So <laughs> let's call it a good night, man. Okay. All right. Good news and good night, everybody. We're out of here.